Well, it has been a rich time here at Rehoboth this month. We've had the opportunity to partner with ministries locally and around the world during our missions month. As we've been immersed here in our focus on missions these last few weeks, it it seems to be one of those moments where it's important to just kind of take a step back and say, okay, God, what now? What does the mission look like here as we move forward? So this morning, I'd like to take a little look at this word, mission, and see how God is stirring our hearts towards his mission at Rehoboth as a church and then also in our individual lives. So at the beginning of this month, uh, I attended a spiritual retreat called Deeper Journey, and it was part of my professional development. And I just want to thank all of you here because you sent me there and you made that possible. So while I was at this retreat, I spent quite a bit of time in solitude, pondering the question, how is your soul? How is your soul? How is your soul today? What should the soul of our church look like in the days ahead? Our consistory is spending some time on that conversation. A vision team is being formed and starting to look at that question. In the next few months, the leadership here will be looking more fully at something called the Harvest Network, which we've recently joined as part of our ministry with the Alliance of Reformed Churches. Exciting things for us to wonder and be curious about. A new moment, you could say, that we are in here, that is for sure. And I'd like to explore with you today a passage that may help us as we explore our mission as a church. So in the long history of the Christian church, a lot of ink has been spilled on the question, who is Jesus Christ? And how does Christ actually change us and how we live? And the first few verses of Philippians 2 are probably the most revealing verses in the whole Bible for answering those two questions. We live in an age where a lot of people know more than ever before about other religious traditions. And of course, the more familiar uh, we get with world religions, the more we get driven back to the question, what really is at the core or the heart of Christianity? What is at the soul of all of it? What sets Christianity apart? from other world religions. And there is very little doubt that one of the answers to that question is Christianity's teaching that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is God. It is not just one of those things that sets us apart. It it is the thing. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was at the same time the true living God, the one true God of heaven and earth, which is, it's simply staggering, astonishing. We're a little too used to it. So it doesn't strike us as dramatically as it should or as powerfully as it should, but, but that is it. That is our faith. That is at the core of it all. So I'd like to read Philippians 2 with you this morning as kind of the key to affirming who Jesus Christ is, but also for what it calls 
the soul of us, the soul of the church, to look like. So, I'd like you to join me in reading Philippians 2, which we could title as Joy in Serving or Imitating Christ's Humility. Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So as I finish reading this passage, I want to share with you those first four if statements. They can actually be translated as since. Paul isn't really questioning whether the readers have these things, but rather saying, since, since you are united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, and you have tenderness and compassion, since you have all of that, because you have been united with Christ, you can act in a certain way. And what way is that? Well, that way is like-mindedness. We all have the mind of Christ. We have the same love. We may not agree on everything, but there is a unity that we have in Christ, in our spirit, in our purpose, in our soul, that gives us love for one another. And all of this runs deeper than necessarily agreeing on everything. What is at the soul of the church? What does it look like to be of one spirit and one mind? Is that even possible? I like how C.S. Lewis describes this as Christian grammar. And he says, first person is he, second person is you, and third person is me. God is first in all of our lives. And then our neighbor, not us, really comes second. That is what Paul is getting at when he says, value others above yourselves. What he means is put your neighbor's needs ahead of your own. I don't know about you, but I kind of hate standing beside anyone else. I want to get in the front of the line. I want to be there first. I always want to drive faster than I'm supposed to. And Paul says, no. Back off. You're not even second. No, you see, the third person is 
me. Now, Paul is not saying that we don't have any self-interest or we can't pay attention to any of them. But in Christ, our interests and others' interests are both important to us. And in Christ, we also realize that when we give, when we pay attention to the interest of others, it actually has this way of giving back to us. That is the economy of giving and receiving that is part of the gospel. So the bottom line for Paul is that we become better people, not because of our own willpower, not by our own determination. We become better people because we have been united with Christ. I recently looked at this book of the Bible with some of the women here at our church and others uh, in their mops group. And we talked about how Paul was in prison when he wrote the book of Philippians and how this letter that he wrote just four short chapters, has the word joy or rejoice in it 16 times. This church in Philippi may very well be Paul's best church, his favorite one. But it's very interesting to read through this letter in one sitting and see how many times he tells the Philippians to quit arguing, to quit fighting, do everything without complaining or arguing. In chapter 1, there's people who are preaching Christ out of bad motives. In chapter 2, our text for today, there is selfish ambition, vain conceit. And then towards the end of the book, he's pleading with people to agree with one another. And in chapter 4, he talks about being gentle. So there's this undercurrent of tension in Philippi that Paul is addressing. And I think we just need to name the fact that conflict and competition and self-interest are going to be a part of any Christian community in a broken world. I firmly believe that you can love Jesus with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and still live a life that doesn't reflect that to others around you. How can that be? Well, I believe that there are two deaths, actually, that need to take place in our lives. The first that we need to die to Christ. There's this moment when we accept Christ as our Savior. But then there's, there's a second death that needs to take place. Dying to ourselves. And that death takes a little longer for many of us. Many hit a wall before coming to this place. I'll give you an example. Let's, let's say I accept Jesus as my Savior, and, I, and I'm on fire for Jesus. I am telling all my friends about my newfound faith and what he's done for me. I truly die to Christ. I start going to church. I join a life group. I get involved with some of the ministries that I am passionate about in the church. And then something happens. I find out that the church is full of sinners. <sighs> Crazy enough, but people don't just become angels when they come to Christ. I find out that the church is actually a hospital for sinners. And complaining that it is sinful is like complaining of a hospital because it has sick people in it. In the church, you will have the healthiest of people, the sickest of people, and everything in between. So now I have this dilemma to face. Beg the church and quit on it, or become more serious and intentional about 
the way I work out my salvation, primarily in terms of my relationships. First of all, with other believers. So this is where that second death needs to take place. I need to die to me. And like I said, this is where a lot of people get hung up. There are many people who are struggling with things in the church, in the church in which they belong. And it is the overall call of Paul here for us to recognize that the church is a broken place. And we can't just give up on our church because it struggles with certain things. We also should not get this idea going that the church down the road doesn't have any of these kind of problems. I always like this saying, watch out if you find the perfect church because now you're in it and you're not perfect. There is a reason Jesus told us the two greatest commandments are, number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then number two, to love your neighbor as yourself. And those are two distinctly different commands for us. The one calls us to die to Christ, but the other, it gets tougher when we have to die to us, our preferences and our wants, and instead to put first our desire for others to come to know Christ. I want to tell you about one of the things I've been pondering here lately. We've been taking a look at our budget quite intently here. And I'll be honest, I've told people here that it seems that Rehoboth has been living by sight for a long time with their budget. And God's calling us to a new moment. One we're being called to live by faith. And that's causing a lot of squirming in our seats. We don't really like this place. Everyone enjoys a cushion more than sitting in hard places. And that's where we are. And I have to wonder if that isn't by accident. But there's more to this story that I want to share with you. I want to encourage you today because I have to tell you that I don't know of very many small town churches that are as bold as this one here. You have four full-time staff here five part-time staff. And personally, I think they're amazing. And you pour out love to this community like a fountain. You don't ask for anything in return, whether that's with our youth, our food distribution, prayers offered up in school, following to invitations to anyone who will come. Deep hearts passionate about intercessory prayer, discipling kids, youth, adults, elderly, missions, intergenerational fellowship. I could go on and on here. I have a confession to make. Up until a month, couple months ago, I thought that our budget lines for missions came out of this, our missions conference. But that isn't true. We have a budget set up for missions that comes out of our general fund, plus a missions conference that we put on top of that. All of these things that I just mentioned are mind-blowing to me. How many country churches do this kind of thing? How many country churches raise fifteen dollars to $20,000 in one night for their youth? 
the heart and the soul of this church beats for something far greater than us. All of these things point to dying to self, of living by faith, and that's tough stuff. There's a great book that's been written entitled From Success to Significance. And the thesis of this book is that most of us in North America live most of our lives struggling to be successful. But the book encourages us to take a turn within our lives sooner than later to not just being successful but having significance. And in our passage today, Paul is so focused on wanting to know that his life matters that there is significance, that all this pain and all this toil and all this work, that he did not run in vain. And I think that he would add that the significance comes from being united with Christ. I want to share it with you today from a book. Uh, it's a book by Kevin Harney called Organic Outreach. And I want to read for you a little excerpt from this book today. The Bible tells us that Jesus loves the world. He saw people as they really were, dead and lost in their sin and brokenness, and yet he still cared for them and sought them out. If a church wants to reflect Jesus' heart and mission, it also must learn to love the world that Jesus died to save. In the early 1990s, Corinth Reformed Church contacted me three times over the course of three weeks and asked me to consider being their lead pastor. Every time I gave them the same response, no. You would think they'd finally take the hint, but apparently... I wasn't being clear enough for them. The week after my third no, a member of the search team called and asked if he could bring a few people over to my home to talk with me. Once again, I let them know that I was not looking for a new church to serve. But he persisted and asked if I would just give them an hour of my time to share what I thought about their church. They asked me if they could pick my brain and learn from me. I finally agreed to meet with them. Later, I realized they were being very sneaky. The day they came over to talk with me was my day off. So I was in my jeans and wrinkled in and out burger t-shirt. My wife asked me, aren't you going to change? I told her that I had made it clear that this was my day off, that this was not an interview, and that I was doing them a favor. So I was staying in my day off uniform. Three of Corinth's members showed up and we had a great chat. They asked me lots of questions, mostly about how I thought people perceived their church. I asked them if Corinth Church was a body of believers that was ready to count the cost make sacrifices, and do whatever it takes to reach the community with the grace of Jesus. Now keep in mind that this church had been around for a full century, and in all that time it had grown from a few people to slightly less than 300. 
In other words, they had a growth rate of about three people a year, mostly as a result of births and marriages. In fact, a good portion of the church was made up of just three large extended families. Now, don't misunderstand me. These were wonderful people. They believed in the Bible. They cared about the community. They wanted to reach out with the love of God. The problem was that they weren't quite sure what to do next. I assured them that committing to evangelism would cost them more than they realized. They insisted they were ready to count the cost. After talking for about an hour, we prayed, and they headed for the door. As the last member of this little group was walking out, he stopped, looked me straight in the eyes, and said, you are not hearing God, and you need to pray more. Then he left. Let's just say I was a bit irritated by his declaration. I told my wife what he had said and how it bothered me. And her response was not what I wanted to hear. She thought about it for a moment and said, well, maybe you should pray more. Since my wife is right most of the time, I actually did take some more time to pray, and I agreed to visit Corinth Church, preach on a Sunday morning, and take a posture of openness to any nudgings of the Holy Spirit. I also told the search committee that I wanted an opportunity to interview the congregation. They weren't quite sure what I meant, so they asked me to explain. I told them I wanted to gather all of the adults in the church, from high school students to senior citizens, and to let me talk to them. I wanted a full hour to share what the Bible says the church is supposed to be. I also wanted to ask them questions about their commitment to reach their community and the, good new the world with the good news of Jesus. Well, in short, I wanted to find out firsthand how much they were willing to sacrifice for Jesus. Now, at this point, I was fairly sure I was not going to be the pastor of this small country church in Byron Center, Michigan. As I interviewed the conversation, about 75% of the adults were there that morning. I was direct. I asked if they were really ready to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. I held up my Bible and I said to them, the church should never compromise on this. Everything else is up for grabs. They agreed. They assured me once again that short of compromising on the word of God, they were ready to do whatever it would take to reach their community for Christ. So I explained in detail what this would mean. I asked if they were ready to give up some of the shape, form, and style of worship that had been the norm for almost 100 years. Asked if they were ready to put aside their personal tastes for the sake of reaching new people. I reminded them that this was not their church. This was Jesus' church. That anyone who might come to the church was an invited guest. In particular, I asked if they were ready to welcome a new person with no spiritual heritage or history into the church family as a full member I asked if they were ready to treat a brand new person the same way they treated a lifelong third-generation member. I asked them if we could move the furniture in the sanctuary, if we could change the service times, if we could revise the order of worship, 
which had not been significantly altered for decades. And if they were willing to give their finances for ministries that were not focused on them or their family members, but on people in the community. I fired everything I had in my arsenal. I pushed and prodded, and when I was done, I gave them permission to write me notes to let me know why I should not be their pastor. To my amazement, I was flooded with letters from these dear people saying, we believe God wants you to come and lead this church. They really thought they were ready to make the sacrifice. But I was still doubtful. As you may have guessed, one year later, after one year, um, I accepted the call, and almost a year later, a friend asked me, what has been the biggest surprise of your ministry so far? And without hesitating, I said, they told me the truth. I had heard countless horror stories from pastors who had been with search committees claiming that they wanted to reach outside of their church, only to find out that the congregation disagreed in theory or in practice. In most cases, the disconnection between the pastor's expectation and the congregation's desires had led to painful battles and resistance every time the pastor tried to lead the congregation to pursue a more externally focused vision for the church. Thankfully, that was not my experience at Corinth Church. For the next dozen years, the congregation willingly made sacrifices and counted the cost to reach out. And the results were, and still are, glorious. Hundreds and hundreds of people came to faith in Jesus. The church doubled in size, then doubled again, and is continuing to grow and reach out. Much of this increase has become through brand new believers coming to know God's love. They have counted the cost over and over again. They have sacrificed, and they have been like Jesus. When I first came to Rehoboth, this book was recommended to me by our lead pastor. Some of you think he's angry, and you've taken great strides to tell him that. I would say he is zealous to see you live out what I just read about here. Asking the question of you, maybe you recall it. Who are you going to be? He has taught me much about the cost of following Christ, and I will be honest, completely honest with you. It's been nothing like I thought it would be. Dying to Christ, dying to self, significance, success. How is our soul here today at Rehoboth? In unity, can we say together that it is stunningly beautiful and tragically broken? in constant need of redemption and humility to see the greater things before us and the higher thoughts that we are being called to grasp, in constant need of transformation, can we plead together that the Lord would have his way with us, use us, equip us for greater things, grant us higher thoughts. 
as you enter into the next few weeks, would you please pray for the leadership of Rehoboth? Would you pray for our obedience as a church to look to the interest of others? Would you intercede and ask that we bring joy to our Savior and having the same heart and being one in spirit and in mind? I'd like to close with a final quote from Kevin Harney again. I believe that the church is still the beautiful and mysterious bride of Christ. I am confident that our Savior sees the church as it really is, warts and all, and yet still loves his bride. I am growing more convinced as the years pass that the church is far more beautiful and wonderful than we know. May these words be true of us. How is the soul of Christ's bride here at Rehoboth today? Would you please pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming into this world, for taking on flesh, becoming human. Fully God, fully human. Lord, it is beyond our comprehension. Lord, may we take the time to be still before you ask hard questions, deeper questions, God, than what's at the surface. How is our soul here today, Lord? We desire you and you alone. May you find us faithful in how we live that out, Lord. In your most holy name.